lesson this morning, we are going to continue our look at the most foundational verse of the Bible, which is what verse? Genesis 1-1, the very first verse. We're going to consider how, we're going to continue to consider how God began his creation of the heaven and earth. And then as we move at a rapid pace here into the second verse of the Bible, which continues to explain God's work of creating this place that we call earth, we're going to need to get into a discussion, and it is going to be a little bit deep, so try to stay with me and stay awake, but we will need to get into a discussion of what is known as the controversy between the unshaped earth theory, which is the theory that I am going to be proposing to you, the one that I believe is biblical, and another theory which is known as the gap theory. Now, I believe it's very important to discuss this controversy and talk to you about the gap theory because many of you have probably been taught the gap theory at one point in time in your churches. If not, you have heard about it. And there are a lot of commentators, good old commentators, one such as Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who have taught this. Um, some of the old guys taught it. And, and they did so, I think, just because they didn't have the knowledge that we have today. And so uh, I do want to get into a rather in-depth discussion about the gap theory. Now, if we are ever to truly understand the Bible, and if we are to genuinely understand that this world that we live in and our place in it, it is critically important that we understand the significance of the seven, seven Hebrew words which make up the first sentence that we find in our Bible. And that is why, in our last lesson, we considered very carefully the first three words. Elohim, God, Bereshith, in the beginning, Bara, B-A-R-A, created. And those three words not only told us when the universe was created, when was it created? In the beginning. But they also told us where the universe came from. God Almighty, Elohim, the triune God, called into existence that which previously had no existence. In other words, he created materials which had no former existence except in his own mind. What exactly did he create? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. The remainder of verse 1, he created what? The heaven and the earth. So we want to turn now to a consideration of the two words, heaven, first of all, and earth. Now, in Hebrew, the word we find for heaven, used here in Genesis 1-1, is the word shamayim. Now, this word, just like the name Elohim, I don't know if you can see it because, again, it got absorbed there. Yeah, you can sort of read it. But just like the word Elohim, this word, Shamayim, has the I am plural ending, which is used for nouns and proper nouns. So the word in English can be translated as either heaven, as we see it here, or as heavens. If you will look at Genesis 1, um, no, 2, chapter 2, verse 1, it's translated, the same word there is translated as heavens, thus the heavens and the earth. So it can be translated as either heaven or heavens, 
depending on the context of the passage in which the word is used and depending on whether it's used with a singular or a plural verb. Now, in this context, in chapter 1, verse 1, we don't have any further clues, so it doesn't matter whether we translate the word as heaven or heavens. Didn't God create all three of the heavens anyway? So it really doesn't matter here how we translate it. We know that God's creative work of heaven, making heaven as revealed to us here in this verse, did not, now this may come as a surprise to you, but this did not include the making, the creating of the sun or the moon or the stars because they did not come into being until the fourth day of creation. You could look at verse 16. That's when they were created. The essential meaning, then, of the word shamayim seems to correspond with our word for space, such as when we speak of outer space or atmospheric space. In Genesis 1-1, the word shamayim refers to the component of space. In the beginning, God not only created time, because before the beginning there was no time, God is outside of time. So he not only created time, but he also created space. So, so far, what we read in verse 1 is that God created time and he created space. But there was one more component necessary to create the universe, and that was the component of matter. And so, along with creating the heavens or space, God also created the earth. The Hebrew word for earth is the word eretz, E-R-E-T-S. And that also got absorbed there, but I had it there originally. And it is often translated elsewhere in the scripture as either ground, just the basic dirt ground of the earth, or land. Now here in Genesis 1-1, it refers to the component of matter in the universe. At this point in time of this initial stage of creation, there were yet no other material bodies in the universe. Now remember, as I just said, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and we can assume this would mean the other planets, did not come into existence until the fourth day. According to verse 2, the earth originally had no form. What's it say there in verse 2? And the earth was without form and void. Now we're going to talk more about this later on in this lesson this morning. But uh, for now, let me just say that the earth had no form, so Genesis 1-1 must be speaking of God's creation then of the basic element of matter. Just matter, which he would then organize into a structured spherical earth. So in verse 1 of the Bible, we are told of the creation of time in the beginning. We are told of the creation of space. God created the heaven. And we are told of the creation of matter. He also created the earth. And the universe is composed of these three components, time, space, and matter. That's what makes up everything that, that is. We live in time, and everything is either space or it's matter. 
And none of these, science tells us, none of these three components can exist without the other. Now, God is, in case you didn't know it, he is the master scientist. He created science, so he knows all about science. And he is the one, therefore, who created these three basic dimensions of science simultaneously. He created them all at the same time. One cannot exist without the other. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, time, space, and matter. He being the one who then provided the energy needed to create these basic essentials of the universe. So Genesis 1-1 could correctly be paraphrased to read like this. In the beginning, the transcendent, all-powerful triune Godhead called into existence the space-matter-time universe. Now, of course, we know it isn't until later on in the scripture that we learn that God is a trinity, right? We don't really learn it right here, but we can see it because we have the advantage of having the whole counsel of God, so we can see all three members of the Godhead involved in creation, as we'll talk about more this morning also. But we do see that his first recorded creative activity was a tri-universe. Isn't that amazing? He created time, space, and matter. And this at least does hint of the fact that he is also triune, right? Just like when he created us. We are made in his image and we're body, soul, and spirit. There's so much of this trinity business in the creation account that it is truly amazing. I'll t point out some more things as we go on. So Genesis 1-1 is not a summary verse for the events which are then described in the rest of chapter 1. Now I want you to understand this. This is part of what I believe to be true in the most biblical theory, as opposed to the gap theory, the unshaped earth theory, would say that verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that that is a, not a summary statement that God just made everything. You know, sun, moon, stars, planet earth in its shape of, of, as a sphere, put everything on it. And then he goes ahead and describes how he did it. I don't see it that way. In other words, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth does not state God's completed work of creation which then is detailed for us in the six days that follow. Rather, if you go back to Genesis 2-1, that is the summary statement. That verse denotes the end of the six days of his creative work, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And then the summary statement for God's completed work of creation, you know, including his seventh day of rest, that statement is given to us in Genesis 2-4, which reads, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. So what I say here, and I'll explain this more as we go on, but Genesis 1-1 is just God creating the triune components of the universe, time, space, and matter. And if you look at verse 2, it tells us, and the earth was without form. You see, this isn't the completed earth. This is just God telling us how he did it in the various stages. So if you want to make a mark there, I know a lot of people misinterpret verse 1 and think that's, you know, God created everything. Everything was in place, the sun, the stars, everything on earth. But that's not true. This is just the first stage of his creative work. 
Now, having told of the creation of the heavens, or space, and of the earth, matter, the scripture then moves to focus its reader on the earth. Okay? In verse 2, because earth was to become the dwelling place of man. Earth is the focus now. In verse 2, we read the words, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There have been two basic priests, which I've already mentioned to you, or positions of interpretation regarding verse 2 of the scripture here. And these two theories are theories held by conservative, fundamental, Bible-believing Christians. I am not talking about theories of the liberals. I'm not talking about theories of evolutionists. These are theories held by godly men and women, fundamental Christians. Some hold to what I believe, and I'll tell you why. Some hold to the unshaped or undeveloped earth theory, whereas others hold to a position which is most commonly referred to as what I've already told you, the gap theory, G-A-P, gap theory. But this theory also has other names, at least six other names. It is also referred to as the divine judgment theory, the recreation theory, the restitution theory, the ruin and reconstruction theory, and the pre-Adamic cataclysmic theory. So now you know why I go with the one called the gap theory. <laughs> now at this time in our study, we do need to examine, this is going to get a little technical, but we do need to examine both of these interpretations and see if we can determine which one is the most consistent with what do you think? God's word, the whole counsel of God. So I'm going to begin with the gap theory. A common interpretation among, as I said, fundamental Bible-believing Christians who believed that it was necessary to accommodate the geological ages, you know, the millions and billions of years of the geological ages where the strata of the earth was laid in sedimentary levels and the fossil record is in those, that the geological ages, which are described by the evolutionists, they believed that it was necessary um, to insert these ages into the creation account given to us in Genesis chapter 1. Now, since these believers took the Bible and take the Bible literally, they therefore rejected what is called the day-age theory, which suggests, we'll talk about the day-age theory in another lesson, but this theory suggests that each one of the creative days, you know, the six creative days of the creation week, were not literal 24-hour days, but rather that they were geological ages of millions of years each. In other words, each day was like millions of years instead of a literal 24-hour day. Well, these fundamental Bible-believing Christians rejected the day-age theory. So the only other possibility that they had in order to accommodate the geological ages and still be able to take God's six days of creation literally as six 24-hour periods of time, their only other alternative was to insert the geological ages between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 
1-2. Their teaching is that the primeval creation of Genesis 1-1, all right, what we've just looked at, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. They say that this took place billions of years ago. See, because they became convinced that the earth was not a young earth, that, you know, the, day, the age um, dating method by the evolutionists had to be true. And so they said, well, we've got to figure out how the earth can be billions of years old. And so they say that the creation that we just read in verse 1 took place billions of years ago and all the geological ages which are claimed to have taken place by the evolutionists occurred then in this tremendous time gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Verse 2, you see, they say, describes the condition of the earth. The earth was what? Without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth. They say that that verse describes the earth after a great cataclysm took place and ended all those millions of years of the geological ages. Now, this cataclysm, this great global catastrophe, they say, they suggest, had to do with Satan's sin against God and his subsequent judgment. Remember when he was cast out of heaven with one-third of the angels. And this cataclysm then left the earth in darkness and without form and covered with water. Because the earth was ruined, then God recreated it, you see, in the six literal days which are described in the rest of chapter 1, verses 3 to 31. Now that sounds pretty good at first, doesn't it? I mean, you know, just when I throw it out... You know, if you're convinced the earth is billions of years old and you, and you say, well, we've got to put those billions of years somewhere, so we'll put them there, that sounds pretty good. Well, this theory was first proposed to the world by a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers was a contemporary of Charles Darwin. Around the year 1814 is when he proposed this theory. And this theory, the gap theory, was popularized by a footnote in the original 1917 edition of the Schofield Reference Bible. Recently, it was promoted and popularized even more by Bible commentator Arthur Custance in his book, which is entitled Without Form and Void. So I am not telling you something that isn't out there. It is out there. A lot of people teach the gap theory. Now, the main purpose of the ruin and reconstruction theory or the divine judgment theory or the gap theory, the main purpose of it is to attempt to harmonize the Bible's account of creation with the geological column, which is proposed by the evolutionists, whose teaching, of course, became very prominent at the time, Thomas Chalmers and, of course, Charles Darwin, and which was even more popular at the time of Dr. Schofield in the early 1900s. Many fundamental conservative Christians thought that they could simply ignore the whole issue of evolutionism, which was becoming so popular, and they, you know, they were scratching their heads saying, what are we going to do about it? Well, they thought that they could just ignore the whole issue and it's millions and billions of years to produce the supposed geological ages which are 
found in the rock layers, you know, of Earth's crust, they thought they could just ignore it by merely tucking them away very neatly in a gap of undetermined time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And this way, see, a lot of Christians were losing their faith when evolutionism began to get popular, weren't they? I mean, they were. They were thinking, oh, my goodness, if this is true, then everything that we have believed is false. And so these Christians had good, a good reason. They were trying to accommodate these millions of years of what it, they thought it took to make the geological column and the fossil record in Earth's crust um, so that people wouldn't lose their faith. They say, no problem. We can accommodate this. We'll just stick them there. And they looked for things to try to support this theory. And then they thought, well, people won't, don't have to lose their faith. We can still believe in the six literal days of creationism that are given to us in the rest of chapter 1. However, the issue is not that simple. It is just not that simple. And sadly, this type of attitude is what has caused the evolutionary establishment to take control of our nation's public school system and our schools of higher learning. And sad to say, even most of our seminaries. And it's what has caused the evolutionary establishment to completely take over our news media and the vast majority of other institutions in our country, and even to have its strong impact on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though very few gap theorists would say that they believe in evolution, I know that Dr. J. Vernon McGee did not believe in evolutionism. He was convinced, unfortunately, I think if he had the information, of course he's with the Lord, I think if he had the information that we have today, thank the Lord because of the creation scientists, there's many, many of them now, and the Institute for Creation Research has done so much lately. I think that if Dr. McGee and these other fellows had the information that we have, they would no longer believe in the gap theory. I'm really very convinced of that. But... Um, most of them would say that they do not believe in evolution, yet their tendency to simply ignore the issue by accommodating evolutionary teaching in this supposed gap of time in the scripture has had its negative effects, big time negative effects, even in the church. Any theory of biblical interpretation which attempts to accommodate the geological age system of evolutionism, and this includes what is known as theistic evolutionism, which is very, very popular, and yet it is totally unbiblical. And again, we'll have to get into this and explain to you why. Or progressive creationism, which is another attempt to accommodate the geological age system of evolutionism. Any of these, and there are other theories out there, those are the two big ones, with addition to the gap theory. Any one of these must be examined very, very carefully to see if it's based, if they are based on sound exegesis of the scripture, or if perhaps their interpretation is an attempt to compromise with the false teaching of evolutionism. Now, I don't have time in this lesson this morning to verify that last statement that I just made. But if you'll hang in here with me in the next few months, I will verify what I just said, false teaching of evolutionism. 
all right? Now, the gap theory does not actually accommodate the geological ages as it thinks that it does. The theologians who accepted it were obviously not geologists. The gap theory, remember, says that the first earth of verse 1 was destroyed by a tremendous cataclysm which then left the world, what? Void, empty, in total darkness, and covered with water. Now, this gigantic cataclysmic crisis, they say, is what ended the geological ages. However, the entire system of the geological ages is based completely on the assumption of what is called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the belief that all things continue as they have from the beginning. Does that sound familiar? We read about that in 2 Peter 3, 4, where the scoffers of the Lord's second coming say, where's the promise of his coming? All things, you know, there's not going to be some great change in the world with the Lord Jesus returning to earth and all the tribulation and everything that we studied last year. All things, they say, continue as they have from the beginning of the creation. There's, you know, that's what uniformitarianism is. That's a hard word. Uniformitarianism is that all things continue uh, from, as they have from the beginning. In other words, all the physical processes have always functioned in the past as they do today in the present. Now, this teaching, this teaching of uniformitarianism does not allow for any kind of global, you know, worldwide catastrophism. And that is why uniformitarianists will reject believing in the global flood. That's why they make Noah's flood not a global thing, but just a local flood. And that, of course, is also why they do not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come at the time of the second coming. The global flood, by the way, and of course I don't have time to get into this either, and I can't wait till we get there, but the global flood of Noah's day is what very easily and very simply explains the fossil record. Animals, you know, being killed suddenly in the great deluge, the great global covering of the world in water. Animals, you know, were instantly killed when all these layers of mud and water just immediately drowned them and killed them. Some the mammoths even have little buttercups in their stomach. That's how instantly they were killed and fossilized. It also easily explains the layering of the sediments of the geological column. You know that the earth has got all these layers with fossils in them. Anyway, we'll get to that when we talk about the flood. But the flood is what explains the geological column. But these, these other guys, these uniformitarianists, do not accept a global cataclysm. That is totally contrary to their belief in uniformitarianism. So they certainly would not accept a global cataclysm which was caused by Satan's sin and fall. No geologist accepts the gap theory or any other theory which requires a global catastrophe if 
He also accepts the geological ages of evolutionism, of uniformitarianism. A worldwide cataclysm, you see, denies the premise on which the whole geological age system is based, which is that all things continue uniformly as they have from the beginning. The geological strata of the earth can be only explained in terms of either a global catastrophe or uniformitarianism. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were right with me. Okay, let me try to put this. I've, I've really been, I understand this, okay? I really do. I've got it all up here. It's just trying to communicate it to you. And it took me, it took me a long time studying to get all this. But it, see, either everything was caused by a catastrophe, which instantly killed the animals and fossilized them, you know, and, and put all the, with mud and waters churning and putting all the layers of the strata into the earth. That would be caused by either a catastrophe, which we believe, or I believe, I can't speak for you, occurred during Noah's flood, or you have to accept the geological ages of uniformitarianism or evolutionism, which say that it took millions and millions and billions of years to build up all those layers in the, the crust of the earth and to put the, you know, the fossils in there, etc. Now, there's, there's a whole lot I wish I could have time to tell you that says that that isn't accurate about evolutionism and the building up of the millions of years and, the, and where the fossils are and how they're, they're complete and there are no transitions between species and all kinds of things. But you have to either believe one or the other. One teaching negates the other, all right? You can't have both. But that is what the gap theory is trying to accommodate, both the uniformitarian teaching of the geological ages of evolutionism and global catastrophism. So the theory is self-defeating scientifically. No evolutionary geologist will accept it. All right? You see, the geological age system, as I said, depends on the supposed evolutionary succession of the fossils being preserved in the sedimentary rocks of the crust of the earth. A cataclysm, now listen to this, maybe you'll get this, a cataclysm which would leave the earth covered with water, that's what we read about in verse 2, and totally in black, pitch black darkness, that's what the word darkness speaks about, and without form... All right, would only could only have been caused by a, an explosion of global proportions, because it would have to have thrown billions and billions of tons of the Earth's crust into the sky in order to blot out the light of the sun. You see, it tells us in verse two that the Earth was without form, and it was in total darkness. Now, they believe that in the beginning God created everything, the heaven, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and that it went on for millions and millions of years. So that earth, they say, was covered with all kinds of animals and even maybe some forms of people. That's what the evolutionists would say. All right, so this second verse tells us that the only way the earth could have gotten in this horrible condition where it was without form, in darkness, covered with water, void, nothing living on it, would be for a tremendous explosion. That explosion would have been so immense that it totally blocked out any light at all from the sun, the moon, or the stars. All right? 
Now, if that happened to the earth, what do you think would have happened to all the evidence of the geologic column? It would have been exploded to pieces. It wouldn't still be there for us to look at and say, oh, the earth must be millions of years old. It wouldn't be there. The earth was without form and void. So you see, it, it's, they have a problem there. Um, it would have wiped out all the sedimentary crust of the earth and all of the fossils, so there would be no evidence of the geological ages, which the gap theory adherents are attempting to accommodate. Furthermore, these fundamental Bible-believing conservative Christians who do propose the gap theory so that they can hold to a literal translation of the Bible, you know, in the six literal days of creation, also leave themselves in trouble with regard to Noah's flood. If the majority of the Earth's fossils and those sediments were laid during the gap, you know, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, then what geological evidence is left from the worldwide cataclysmic flood of Noah's day? So you see, they have a problem with that also. Not only is the gap theory unacceptable to the geologist, but it is also very destructive to the Bible. And for this reason, I reject its teaching. In accepting the geological age system, the proponents of the gap theory are also, you see, accepting the fossil record which identifies these various ages. All right, so by trying to accommodate the geological the geological ages of evolutionism and the millions and millions of years, they also have to accept the fossil record because it's the fossil record that the geologists say identifies the various layers of the Earth's crust. Now think with me. Fossils are alive or dead? Fossils are dead things. Very good. Fossils tell of a world of suffering and disease and malformities. They found, you know, fossils where things were malformed, just like we have people with malformities today. I'm talking about animals mostly. But all, fossils, most of all, speak of a world of death often violent and widespread death. This was a world, uh, I mean, that's what it speaks of. of. Death was a global reality. Fossils actually speak of a world very much like our own world, a world which contains all manner of living creatures who obviously died, right? <laughs> or they wouldn't have been fossilized. Now, according to the gap theorists, the geological ages which are supposedly identified by the fossil record, these ages existed before the rebellion of Satan against God, right? Because remember, they say that it was Satan's rebellion against God which brought on the cataclysm which ended the geological ages. Furthermore, the geological ages would not only then have existed before the fall and sin of Satan, but they would have existed before the sin of Adam. 
Adam's sin does not occur until when? After the creation week, third chapter of Genesis. Now what this means, if you get nothing else, try to get this, because this is the main reason for rejecting the gap theory. What this means is that suffering and death existed for millions, perhaps billions of years, before either the sin of Satan or the sin of Adam. Yet, what does the Bible very clearly teach us? It teaches us that death came into the world only when Adam sinned. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.21 with me. 1 Corinthians 15.21. Got to find it here myself. 1 Corinthians 15.21. It says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. You can go back to chapter 1 now of Genesis. The gap theory is unbiblical in that it has to state. Now see, I don't think most of these proponents of the gap theory actually thought through all of this. But to accept the geological ages, they also have to accept the fossil record. And so the gap theory has to state then that death prevailed for ages prior to the creation of Adam and prior to the fall of Adam. In addition, the gap theory also has to state that since suffering and death occurred even before Satan's sin against God, then God himself is responsible for the evil and the death which the fossil record testifies to. You see, the gap theory does not solve the evolutionary problem for Bible-believing Christians. By attempting to insert the geological ages of evolutionism in a supposed gap of time before Genesis 1-2, this theory really only makes things worse. The theory not only leaves evolutionism intact when it is, as I will show, uh, Lord willing, a very anti-biblical teaching, but it also adds the problem of why God would suddenly end the geological age, the millions of years of the evolutionary process of the geological ages, and then begin everything all over again with six days of special creation, especially since the plants and the animals and the men whom he created in the six days all had their counterparts in the world which he supposedly had just destroyed. In other words, why would the all-powerful creator God take billions of years developing a world and then suddenly allow it to be reduced to utter chaos in a cataclysm caused by his own punishment of Satan? And by the way, speaking of Satan, Satan's sin and his fall took place where? In heaven, on the holy mountain of God, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 28. It did not occur on earth. There is not a single word in the Bible which connects Satan's rebellion in heaven with a cataclysm, a global 
cataclysm taking place down here on earth. It seems far more likely that Satan's rebellion and his uh, expulsion, you know, down to the earth was directly connected with God's creation of man on the sixth day. It seems very possible that Satan first became resentful and envious when he learned of God's plan for man and how man was going to have this special, unique relationship with God and how man was to be even higher than the angels and the angels were to be ministering spirits to man. I believe that this may very well be a major factor leading to Satan's rebellion after he saw Adam created and became jealous of Adam. And therefore, Satan's rebellion very likely occurred following God's creation of Adam and Eve and not prior to their creation. God cast Satan to the earth, you know, after, of course, he rebelled and had his five eye wills. And there on the earth, he was then divinely permitted, you know, to test man's faithfulness to his creator to see whether he also, like Satan, would desire to be as God. So after his fall and his jealousy or whatever it was, it was jealousy, um, he was then allowed to, and pride, of course, pride, he was allowed to come down here and test man to see if he could also get man to follow him, as he did with one-third of the angelic host. Well, furthermore, Genesis 1.31 makes it very clear that Satan was not on the earth prior to Adam's creation, because it tells us in that verse that God saw everything that he had made and what did he declare? What did he? It was very good. Now, in fact, in the very next verse, um, it, it indicates to us in, in chapter 2, verse 1, it indicates to us that God's observation there included the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. So at this point, after the first week of creation, everything was good, not only on earth, but where? In the heavens, too. Satan's sin, therefore, must have happened after this first week and not before. Otherwise, God would never have said everything was very good. Now, following in this very same line of reasoning... It also would not make sense for God to look over everything that he had made in the entire heavens and earth and proclaim it to be very good if the ground and the rocks under Adam's feet were absolutely packed full of dead, smashed, broken animals, you know, which God would know. In time, Adam would discover, or at least Adam's descendants would discover, all these layers of, of broken, dead animals down there. So would the great God, who is without sin, would he lie? Would he say that something was very good when it was built upon layers and layers of death? Would the God of perfection create his perfect world on top of a global graveyard? Would he say in his recorded word that no death existed in the world before Adam's sin and his own curse on Adam's sin? 
when actually death had existed for millions and billions of years? If the evolutionary process did occur between a gap of time, you know, there between chapters, uh, verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, then why in the world didn't God just come right out and say so very plainly and clearly in his word so that we would understand the fossil record and the various layers of the earth's crust? Why didn't he just explain what happened there for us? Why are Christians, like you and me, who take his word literally, why are we led to believe that it was the great flood of Noah's day which caused all of the fossils and the sedimentary layering of the earth's crust? Well, I'll tell you why. Very simply, it's because the gap theory and any other one of these theories, like theistic evolutionism and progressive creationism and the day-age theory, any other theory which attempts to compromise with evolutionism will always, always result in chaos and confusion because such theories are contrary to God's word. God's word, when it is taken literally, is clear, and it doesn't contradict anything at all which is left behind in the earth as evidence that his word can be taken literally and that his word is true. It's merely man's interpretation of the evidence in this earth which is wrong. The gap theory, you see, was founded on a misunderstanding of what science really is, and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, in a future lesson, and what the evidence of the geologic column really is. Many scientific reasons, as I said before, which were not known when the gap theory was proposed, now cast very serious blows to the age-dating methods of the evolutionists. And we will talk about those age-dating methods also and why they are not accurate. Creationists have revealed many, many scientific methods which do indicate that this planet that we live on is not billions of years old, that it is a relatively young Earth. And so because of all these reasons that I have given you here this morning, and I hope you have followed along with me, the main reason being that the gap theory is unbiblical because it teaches death before Adam's sin. But for this, these reasons, we reject it. I reject it. And so I'm going to go on now to the unshaped earth theory or the undeveloped earth theory as we forget, just forget totally about a gap of time between verses 1 and 2. And we're going to go straight now into verse 2 from what we have already discussed in verse 1. Because the way I have already taught you verse 1, I have taught you from the unshaped earth theory. All right? Now, the, created, the creation narrative, which we find here in this first chapter of Genesis, gives us God's steps in bringing form to the unformed earth and filling its empty surface with living inhabitants. When initially created, the earth, as we discussed earlier, was simply matter. It was just matter, the component of matter. And then verse 2 tells us what this matter looked like. All right, it was without form and void. There is absolutely no contradiction with this statement that the initial creation was of basic elements, not yet in their completed form, 
and the verses which follow and then tell us about the steps by which God brought form to the unformed earth and then filled up its empty or void surface. In fact, that is exactly what the six days of creation involve. The first three days, God forms the universe. You see that here? The first three days, he formed the earth. He made the atmosphere, Kevin's, the water, and the land masses. That's in the first three days. First three days, and he made three places of activity. Interesting? He's the triune God. All right, the last three days, what did he do? He filled the earth, and he filled the atmospheric heavens with the sun, the moon, the stars. He filled the water with the water creatures. He filled the land masses with the land creatures. And you and I are land creatures, so man was formed on the sixth day. And again, three, three things. Isn't that wonderful? He completes, in other words, the creation which he began. He fulfills and he satisfies his plan for creation. So the creation account gives, uh, it reveals God to us as a God who forms that which is formless. And it presents a God who fills that which is unfilled and empty. And he's a God which completes that which is incomplete and he satisfies that which is unsatisfied. You know, God can do exactly the same thing today with the life of a person who will yield himself to him. Isn't that wonderful? When I give my testimony, this is these are the verses I use because before Christ, I was without form and void. I had no purpose. My life was empty. I, darkness was upon my face deeply. People could look at me and see I was lost. And then what happened? The Spirit of God moved across the face of my waters, my deep waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Perfect, perfect picture of the new birth is what we have here in the first three verses of, of Genesis. And that's why we're going to be spending so much time, these important verses of the Bible. So what verse 2 means is that when God initially created the matter which he would then use to form the earth, it was without form and it was void, meaning that it was empty. It had no inhabitants. So this far then, we could read the scripture essentially as saying this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, or he created time, space, and matter. And the matter which he created was at first unformed, and uninhabited. Now, we must realize that at this beginning stage, again, I repeat, there was no sun, there was no moon, there were no stars, only the basic matter component of the time-space-matter continuum. Now, it should be noted before we go on that the first word of verse 2 in both English and Hebrew is the conjunction what? And, of course, it's not and in Hebrew, but it is the word wa, and it is the first word in verse 2. Wa, W-A-W, that's a funny word, isn't it? Now, this word sequentially, it's a conjunction, so it sequentially joins the statement of verse 2 to the statement made where? In verse 1. In fact, every verse of chapter 1, if you will look, make a quick sweep, look at every verse in chapter 1 except verse 27, and you will find that every single verse in chapter 1 starts with the word wa. 
or and. I said except 27. Well, yeah, verse 1. I'm sorry, yeah, verse 1 too. So the common sense reading then of verse 2 is that it follows immediately upon the creative act of the first verse, just as verse 3 follows immediately upon the creative act of verse 2, and so on and so on. So there is nothing in the context here to indicate a significant gap of time to allow for all the millions of years of the geological ages between verse 1 and verse 2. It's just in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That's the way it should be read. And God said, and God saw the light. The whole thing is one continuous succession of events. Also, I'm not going to take the time to explain this, but it is in your notes. Um, the gap theorists will talk about the word was in verse 2, where it says, and the earth was without form and void, and they say that it should have been translated became, and the earth became without form and void. But that is not true, and I give you the reason for that in the notes. Now, in addition to first creating an unformed and unfilled earth, verse 2 continues by telling us that darkness was upon the face of the deep, now, contrary to the idea of some people that because God himself is light, that he could therefore not create a world in darkness, this isn't true. It does not agree with the scripture. Isaiah 45, 7 contains God's own, own words, and here's what he says. I form the light, and I create darkness. The physical universe of time, space, and matter was yet unformed, and it was yet unenergized. And light is a form of energy. There was no light until when? Verse 3. What, is the, what does the absence of light mean? Darkness, okay? Just as the absence of form and the absence of inhabitants means a world in its essential basics, not yet completed. Now, there is no evil implied here on God's part. That's what some will say, that God wouldn't create an earth like this. Well, there's no evil intended here. It merely tells of incompleteness. Just like, you know, when God started the Bible, he didn't make it all at once. So if you just had the first five of the books of the Bible back in Moses' day, that doesn't mean those first five books were evil or God was evil. It was just the Bible in an incomplete stage, just like here, the earth was incomplete. God's work in me is incomplete and in you, right? He's still working on us. We won't be complete till we're like him when we're in glory. So we're told here that darkness was upon the face, and you can write there, face means presence of the deep. And the word for deep is the word tehom in the Hebrew. And it refers later on in Genesis chapter 1 to the waters of the ocean. So somehow or another, we know that here in verse 2, this word deep applies to waters. So the picture seems to be one of all the basic physical elements being sustained in a watery matrix throughout the, the darkness of space. If you can imagine that, something like this picture here. Now, Proverbs 8, if you want to flip over there real quickly, I've got to hurry up. Proverbs 8 refers to this original formless condition of the earth 
in a kind of a watery suspension when it says, look there at verse 24. Now this is, this is really neat because this is talking, this section of Proverbs 8 is speaking about the work of the second person of the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is also involved in the first three days of creation. It says there in Proverbs 8, 24, when there were no depths, I, and that word depths there is the same word we have deep in Genesis 1, 2. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. Now look at verse 27. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Now there again, the word depth is the same word deep that we have in Genesis 1-2. Jesus Christ was the one who existed prior to the creation of either the earth or the deep, meaning the waters of the earth. Now notice in verse 27 that he was the one who set a compass upon the face of the deep. Now very interestingly here the word compass is the Hebrew word chug. Do I have that up here? No, I have to get another transparency. Here we go. Chug. Some funny words in Hebrew aren't there? Wa and chug. We're learning a lot of Hebrew. <laughs> But it's the word chug, C-H-U-G. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. And this is the very same Hebrew word which is used in Isaiah 40, verse 22, where it says of God, He sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And it's the same word used in Job 22:14, where it says of God, He walketh in the circuit of heaven. Now, what do these three words, compass, circle, circuit, all the same word, chug, what do they tell us? These words, all of them, were written thousands and thousands of years before men discovered that the earth was not flat, but that it was round. They could have gone to the Bible and have found that out a lot sooner because the Bible was written by the master scientist. He created the earth. Don't you think he knows what its shape is? And he told us that it is a sphere. Well, because as Proverbs 8 states, the compass or the circle, the sphere, the shape had to be set. See, it wasn't set. It had The compass had to be set. The shape, the sphere had to be set upon the face of the deep or the waters. We know then that the original face of the deep had no spherical shape. It was, as we have already stated, without form, right? The elements of matter and the molecules of water were present because God had created them in verse 1, but as of yet they were not energized. The force of gravity was not yet put into operation so that the various particles would be drawn together into a coherent mass, you know, making a definite shape or form. That form being, as we know, a sphere. There were yet no electromagnetic forces operating either, and so therefore everything was in darkness because as of yet there was no light. 
the physical universe existed. God had created it, but up to this point, up to the first half of verse 2, everything was still and everything was dark. Nothing yet had any form, nothing yet had any motion. You know, the earth was not revolving around the sun. It was not spinning on its axis. And it had no light, no form, no motion, no light. We could say that the universe existed, time, space, and matter existed, but it was dead. It existed, but it was dead. And this, again, is a perfect picture of a person without the Lord Jesus Christ. He exists, right? But he is really dead. He is spiritually dead. He has no form or purpose for his life. He is void and empty inside. He tries to fill that void with all kinds of crazy things. He has no light. He has no light of the truth. He has not been imbued with energy and with life. He has not yet been set in motion on the straight and narrow path which leadeth to eternal life. This is the work of who? The Spirit of God. Look at the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God uses what? To give a person life. He uses the Word of God. Look at verse 3. And God said, there you have, the Spirit and the Word. And then the earth becomes alive. And that's just how it is with you and I. You know, we're dead. We have no spiritual life until God the Holy Spirit moves across the face of our waters using the word of God and then let there be light and behold there is light. Now the final section of verse 2 reads as I just said and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now we've already mentioned that the name for God which is used in verse 1 is the divine name what? Elohim which really tells us that God is one, he is a unity, while he is at the very same time a plurality. And we know that he is a trinity. Now we've also discussed the three components of his creation, time, space, and matter, as well as the tri-universe which he created, space, or the heavens, the atmospheric heavens, the land masses, and the waters. That's what this earth you know, the three components of activity, the three fields of activity of this earth are our atmospheric heavens, land, and water. And all of these things reflect the triunity of our God. Now, in verse 2, we are introduced to the Holy Spirit. All right? We've already talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was involved in creation as well. It tells us that in other places in the scripture besides Proverbs 8. And now here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit used here is the word ruach. And it is a word which is also used for breath and for wind. In this verse, it speaks of the person of the spirit as he moves across the face of the waters. And that term, the face of the waters, is one and the same. It's synonymous with the term the face of the deep. And here we see him performing his part in the mighty work of creation. His work is that of energizing or setting in motion all that has been created to this point. This work or this activity of God the Holy Spirit is referred to as moving. 
over the presence or the face of the waters. Now the Hebrew word for moving, the verb move, is very, very interesting. It's the word rachaf, and it is only used three other times in the Old Testament. Two of those occasions are in Jeremiah 23.9, where the word is translated as shake. And the other time we find this word is in Deuteronomy 32.11, where the word rachaf is translated as fluttereth. Okay? So you get it shaking or fluttering. Same word that we see where it says the Spirit of God moved across the face of the uh, waters. Now, some Bible commentators have suggested that this is something like a mother hen hovering over her little baby chicks, you know, as she's protecting them. The basic element of this word moving implies a rapid back-and-forth movement, okay? Back-and-forth, back-and-forth, real fast. Now, according to scientific terminology, the very best word to describe this word today, this word moving, would probably be the word vibrating, if you want to write that in. The universe in order to be energized, needed to have an energizer with a capital E. In order to be set in motion, it needed an omnipotent and all-powerful mover, and that was the creative work of God the Holy Spirit. You know, this again is the, um, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Just excuse me, I'll talk about that in a minute. All right, it's very interesting that science has discovered that the transmission of energy in the operating of this universe that we live in is found in the form of waves, all right? We have light waves, we have sound waves, we have heat waves. Actually, except for nuclear forces, there are only two fundamental types of forces that operate on matter. Nuclear forces operate in matter. That doesn't matter. You don't, huh, that was a pun. <laughs> I didn't even mean that, but you don't have to worry about it. But anyway, there are only two forces that operate on matter. There are the gravitational forces, you know, the forces that keep you and I on this planet, and the forces that the gravitation keeps my Bible on this podium, and it keeps the Earth revolving around the sun. You know what gravity is. And there are also the electromagnetic forces. Now, all of these are associated with fields of activity as well as transmission by wave motion. Waves are rapid back-and-forth movements, which are generally produced by the vibratory motion of a wave generator of some kind. Now, you know, energy simply cannot create itself. It's, it's again, back to that scientific law of cause and effect. For every um, effect, there has to be a cause. We discussed how matter could just not come into existence on it, its own. Matter had to have a creator, and the cause for matter is the omnipotent God. All right, same thing with energy. Energy just could not create itself. And therefore, the, the most appropriate um, cause with a capital C for the first impartation of energy into the universe is described in the Bible as the vibrating, the back and forth rapid, 
rapid moving of the eternal spirit of God. So who is the cause for matter? God, the Father. Who is the cause for the effective energy that we have in this universe? God, the Holy Spirit. It's a perfect word to describe what science has now learned, you know, that all energy comes from a vibratory type of generator. And the, the first generator was the Holy Spirit himself. Now, as the energy from the omnipresent Holy Spirit began to flow outward and make contact with the created space and matter of the universe, then gravitational forces were activated. And these gravitational forces caused the water molecules and the elements of the Earth's particles to do what? To come together to form a great sphere, which then began to move on its axis and to move through space. Now, other particles of matter would also soon come into being and form the sun and the moon and the stars. Isn't it interesting? that the earth was created before the sun. Now, what do you think the world out there would say about that? They'd laugh, 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 but that's what the Bible says. The earth was God's focus, not the sun. The sun and the moon are to serve the earth. But, of course, everything is upside down in this world that we live in. So we have been taught the opposite since we were little children, if we were in public schools. So the formless earth had a compass set over it. In other words, it was formed, and its beautiful form was that of a sphere. So it was ready for light, and it was ready for heat, and for all the other forms of energy which would bring life to this planet. Now, you know, it's very interesting that there was another moving of the Holy Spirit which is mentioned to us in the scripture. In 2 Peter 1.21, it tells us how the word of God was written. Okay, and the same, the same Greek, well, it's Greek here, but it's the same word that we find in the Hebrew, the same Greek word for moving. It says, quote, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the who? Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Same word for move. How did these men write the Bible? On their own, by their own will? Oh, I think I'll sit down and write the book of Genesis. No. They received these vibrating, inspirational waves from God, the Holy Spirit, and they created um, what we have in front of us, the living word of God. Just as the spirit of the living God energized the unformed and the unfilled universe, you know, bringing it form and bringing it beauty and bringing it life, so did the very same spirit later empower the prophets and the apostles to record the very words of the Bible. And it is the only book which can bring form and beauty and life to its greatest, God's greatest creation, man. And then, I will end with this, if we are truly born-again Christians, if we, are, if we have truly received the Lord Jesus Christ in our heart, then we can attest to another moving of the Holy Spirit when he first convicted us of our sin. 
and of our need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when after we repented of our sin and we bowed in submission at the, old, the foot of the old rugged cross and accepted his atoning death on our behalf, then what happened? The Holy Spirit moved into our lives and he took up residence in us and he took that which was without form and void and dark and he brought it life and energy and motion and purpose and form and beauty and eternal life and everything else that you can think of. Isn't this a beautiful, beautiful picture? Well, Lord willing, I've already kind of uh, jumped the gun here, but Lord willing, next time, remember we don't have class next week, but next time we come back, we will talk about the next step in God's creation of the earth, and that is when he says, let there be light, and there was light. Let's pray. Father, how perfect and wonderful your word is, and how we just thank you that we can believe in it, we can believe every single word of it. We know that you are the great scientist, master scientist of the universe, and that there is nothing science can learn that will ever contradict what you have said in your word because you are the author of science. And we need not fear what the world might try to teach us. We can just rely on the good old book because it's always, always going to be accurate. And I'm so glad for that because then I know when it talks about how to be saved, I can count on it, put my life on it, and know for sure that what it tells me is true and that if I receive the Lord Jesus Christ, I will spend eternity with him. Father, thank you for creating this dwelling place called earth. And thank you that you are even now preparing another dwelling place for us in heaven where one day we will go to live and be with you forever. Lord, I love you and I thank you for all that you have taught me this week. And I pray that as the women study this, they'll see the majesty and beauty of it as I have seen. Lord, I love you. Bring us all back safely next time. Give us a good rest. In Jesus' name, amen.